0: Welcome to another episode of Interview for a Pod. This is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. And today is an episode that I have been looking forward to doing for a long time. With one caveat, my hope initially had been that this would be in person. See, today I'm interviewing two of my all-time favorite people, Christine Ho and Amy McIntosh. Christine actually trained me when I was a fellow at Texas Scottish Rite, taught me how to do lateral condyle fractures, and Amy, for all of you who know her, and I'm sure certain members of the audience who may not know her but have heard her, is one of the most energetic, uh, enjoyable people you'll ever get to meet. And so my hope had been to do this at the annual meeting in person, perhaps with a glass of wine, but due to the pandemic, we're going to have to put that on hold, and I just couldn't, couldn't hold that any longer. So... I'm really looking forward to this. Amy is a tremendous spine surgeon. She recently in the past uh, five years moved down from Mayo Clinic back to where she trained at Texas Scottish Rite and Christine uh, had had trained at Texas Scottish Rite and then returned as part of the hand division before ultimately becoming the division director at Children's of Dallas. They're both incredibly accomplished as surgeons, as educators, as researchers, and probably most importantly as parents, and I would certainly put them in the category of badass women pediatric orthopedic surgeons. So uh, without any further ado, uh, please welcome Christine and Amy to the podcast. Thank you as always for all of your support. I continue to enjoy doing this, and I hope that people have some interest in listening to it. Uh, and uh, stay safe, and I look forward to hopefully catching up with all of you soon. Thank you. Uh, We will get started. So um, I am here today with two of my all-time favorite people, Christine Ho and Amy McIntosh, both from TSRH. And uh, it is a Saturday afternoon, which is a little bit of a different time for when I typically record these, which is during the week or in the morning, but we purposely scheduled it in the afternoon, so it'd be a little bit more relaxed. Uh, I may or may not have an adult beverage near me, um, and Christine just woke up from like a four-hour nap and has recently sent me a screenshot of her uh, iWatch, or Apple Watch that showed that she slept 10 hours today. So she's pretty fresh. <laughs> Amy's always fresh. Um, and I'm really looking forward to doing this.
1: Hi, Hi-ho. hi, hi, hi. <laughs> oh, you know what I forgot to tell you, Christine. I found your favorite adult beverage in Central Market. Which one? <laughs> there's so many of them. <laughs> That's true. The wine we had at your house that one night. Oh yeah, the cake bread. Mm-hmm. The cake yes,
2: they are my favorite. One of my favorite wineries, and so, one of yes. the things that we miss about not living in LA that I get them. Uh, I get monthly shipments from their wine club, and then we, whenever they have a shipping special, I order more. I order them in cases.
1: <laughs> so I just wanted to let her know there's some in a local. Uh, grocery store here. So that's exciting. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Okay. We're going to move. On. <laughs> well, that, that actually, it, it, it's a perfect lead in Amy. So I appreciate it. So I wanted to start uh, from both of you to to get a little bit of an idea as to how you got to where you're at now. And so it's a perfect lead in because Christine is not a local te- a native Texan. Um, and I was sort of curious, Christine, if you could sort of touch base or touch a, on a little bit of how you sort of grew up and how medicine became a part of your life and how you knew that you wanted to go that way.
2: Sure. So, I mean, I almost take a little bit of offense to saying that I'm not a native Texan because I got here as soon as I can when I was three.
0: You have to be born in Texas to be true, a, a Texan. Am I, I
2: yeah, right? But I'm, I'm under the category of got here as soon as I could.
0: Gotcha. So
2: my folks moved down here when I was, Three. Uh, it's a very small town called Wichita Falls because they were looking for a GI doctor, which GI that back then in the 70s was a brand new specialty, and that's what my dad uh, had done his fellowship in in New York. And they did not want to live in New York because my dad would have wanted to live in Chinatown, and my mom pointed out that was exactly the same as just staying in Hong Kong, which is where they had immigrated. <laughs> So, uh we moved to Wichita Falls, Texas, and you know, it's a it's a small town. It's about 80,000 people. The only uh, you know, Tony Herring actually uh, grew up down the street or up the street from us on 287 in Vernon, which to Vernon, Wichita Falls is a big town. And interestingly, Chris Dutz, who's also one of my partners, who does congenital hand and is a microsurgeon extraordinaire, also grew up in Wichita Hall. So this weird little pocket in North Texas has kind of produced, you know, several uh, Scottish right surgeons. So um, growing up there, you know, the question was always, you know, which you know, for my parents, uh, you know, valuing education, just like every good Asian immigrant does, is, you know, which college are you, which prestigious college are you gonna go to? And uh, really growing up, I wanted to get as far away as possible from Wichita Falls, Texas. And so um, I went to MIT out in Boston and that was an eye-opener, you know, um, that was the first time met a Jewish person. I did not know what Yom Kippur was. Uh, that was the first time I met anyone who was Hindu or Muslim or even openly gay. And so that that was a really eye-opening experience. And it was really, you know, I encourage, I always, when people ask, I really encourage, you know, trying to get out of your comfort zone and experience new things and meet different sorts of people. Um, you know, it was it was back home and I actually had people ask me in Wichita Falls, oh, so you're going to a technology school? Is that like a tech school? Is that like Virgin, Vernon Regional Tech School? And I'm like, well, similar, but different. <laughs> so I was actually uh, originally was a mechanical engineer. And that's what I thought I was going to do. Because I really like things that fit together. How do things work? I like numbers because, you know, numbers don't lie. You know, you can, you know, we always say about statistics. You can kind of make some of those statistics do whatever you want them to, depending on what you pick. But um, you know, for the most part, numbers don't lie. It's pretty cut and dry. I enjoyed the way uh, engineers think, Um, and so that really kind of, you know, you know, plays well. I think uh, in orthopedics, you know, and then when it really came down to what are you going to do with engineering, I realized that. you know, after doing a couple of projects, we do some real life projects where we go out into the, uh, and find a problem and needs to be solved, and we design a solution and actually manufacture it in the lab. I realized I really didn't want to spend all that time staring at a computer screen. And, um, you know, which is ironic because now at work with EMR, we spend an awful lot of time staring at computer screens. So, um, my dad, being a doctor, had always kind of been, you know, exposed to doctory things. Their friends were doctors. I had, you know, volunteered in the hospital. I spent one summer between college, um, being uh, an SPD tech. So I was actually the person that you, you know, when you open the tray and find that there are things missing, that was me putting the trays together and sterilizing them and, you know, putting everything in the autoclave and flashing stuff. So um, uh, I kind
0: of, Did you get yelled at a lot?
2: Well, you know, uh, interestingly, the hospital in Wichita Falls that I did this, you know, the STD is on the same floor as the OR. They're not, like, down in the basement. So I don't think that, you know, I don't know. Maybe I didn't get yelled at because, you know, my dad works at the hospital. I don't know. I didn't get yelled at. Probably they yelled at the people who were the senior STD. I was just, like, some college person there in the summer. Doing sterile processing. <laughs> it was, you know, and it was, but it was, it was I, you know, I also came into the OR and like helped hold the leg or the arm when they trapped, And, you know, I was kind of there to, if they needed someone extra to transport patients, I transported patients. So I, you know, I had a pretty good idea about kind of, um, you know, about uh, medicine. And, and I knew that it was a really broad category that, you know, really kind of no matter what personality you have, there's something in medicine for you, right? Like if you want to sit in a dark room and drink coffee and look at pictures, you can be a radiologist. If you don't ever want to talk to a person ever again, you could be a pathologist, you know? So I thought it was a pretty safe uh, choice to um, uh, be able to find what I wanted to do in there. And then when I got to med school, I almost quit uh, that first year because I am really not actually a very good memorizer. And there's a lot of memorization of information that happens during that first year. some people had told me that I would be should be interested in orthopedics given my background, and so I wrangled a kind of summer research, you know, um, thing uh, at UT Southwestern, which is where I was in med school then, and um, found that I just really was like amazed. I mean, the first thing I ever saw was, you know, a nailing of a femur on call because it put me on an OR team and everything, and uh, on one of, on one of the ortho trauma teams. And I was just blown away. I thought, you know, if I can do this the rest of my life, then all those med school nonsense will be worth it.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Of course, you went about as far away from nailing a femur on routine basis as a, as somebody who does more hand stuff, but well, that's awesome. Well,
2: you know, on call with, you know, I, I still enjoy doing trauma. You know, and with my position now as division director of our level one at Children's Health Dallas, I mean, I'm doing more trauma now than I did five years ago. Um, but and I realize that I really do enjoy it. I enjoy like putting things back together. I enjoy being able to say to family at some point in time, guess what? You don't need to see me again, and your kid can go back to everything. <laughs> and there's something very satisfying about that. I think trauma could be very is very satisfying.
0: Yeah, I agree. Amy, where, where, was yours such an easy uh, sort of uh, path? Um, Christine paints a pretty logical progression. That's me. Mine she's less logical.
1: (laughs) Mine generally my life is less logical than Christine's in general. But (laughs) I mean, so Christine and I are like if you take the beginning of our, you know, orthopedic journey, we're so polar opposite, it's it's ridiculous actually. So she grew up in Wichita Falls, Texas. I grew up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. So most people don't they don't know what that is. Like everybody thinks of Michigan and they just kind of think of the little mitten, you know, and some people don't even know where Michigan is because it's in the middle of the country. And I think <laughs> a lot of people who live on the East Coast and the West Coast, like the real true middle of the country sort of just disappears for them. But it's this like tiny little piece that honestly looks like Wisconsin, but it's right there up next to Canada. Um That's where I grew up. And I grew up in even a smaller town than Christine because my town was 5,000 people. Holy cow. Yeah, five whole thousand people. So, and my dad actually, interestingly, has two PhDs and he was a college professor and he taught nurses all of their basic science. So he taught anatomy and physiology, Um, he even taught a little like biochemistry. So I can, this is gross, but I can remember like going to see him at work and walking into a lab where they were dissecting pigs and things like that. Um, And then I grew up, my dad also, we had like a hobby farm. So we had like 200 acres and we were farm to table before it was cool. So basically everything I ate growing up, we grew or we raised. And then this is also kind of gross, but we would get a baby cow and then we would bottle feed it and then we would raise it and then we would slaughter it and then we would drag it across the yard and then we would hang it up from my basketball hoop and we would bleed it out on the driveway and then we would butcher it in
0: the garage. And then- Wow. This that, explains so much.
2: What did you put in the bottom of the basketball hoop so it wouldn't tip over when you
1: drained out the No, cow? it was, the basketball hoop was made out of a very large um, tree. So it's was a big tree. Oh, okay. Yeah. So
2: that, makes sense. Uh-huh. that was my, makes my sense. mind was like, how on that happen? Cause so we yeah, have so I thought it was normal. I thought
1: everybody grew their animals and that's what they ate. And we made homemade maple syrup. Like I used to have to go out and run from tree to tree to put sap in a bucket and then run with a bucket to the tractor. And we made homemade maple syrup. One year, my dad planted three acres of asparagus. So I got to pick three acres of asparagus by hand for 10 cents a pound. It was amazing. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was normal. And then I went to the very pre- I didn't go to MIT, Nick. I went to the very prestigious Central Michigan University, <laughs> which. That's,
0: good. That's a great school. Isn't it? It's
1: amazing. It's a max school. Yep. yep. Um, but the reason I chose that school was because at the time, uh, it was one of like 16 schools in the country where you could get a bachelor of science in sports medicine. So my undergraduate degree was in sports medicine and I was a certified athletic trainer before I went to medical school. So then I realized now that made me predestined to become an orthopedic surgeon because when I was 18, I learned the orthopedic physical exam. like So I could do the orthopedic exam when I was 19. And then I went to Michigan State for medical school and I tried very hard not to be an orthopedic surgeon, but it was just like, I, it was like predestined. It was so easy. Why, why
2: would you try to not be an orthopedic surgeon?
1: I mean, I felt like I, I would- guess, You know it how it is. I'm like is like it. you, you just it. think you don't want the lifestyle, right? and so it's a pretty good lifestyle i mean right
2: i think that that matters of who you're seeing right so i just remember being a med student and kim mesura who is on private practice but she had just come back as brand new staff from her hand fellowship and i think her hand fellowship was at hsf and came back and watching her i thought oh you know you see it and you feel like well she's doing it so I can do that you know as opposed to being at a med school where all you see are a bunch of no offense Nick but old white men
1: yeah some I didn't of them who really meet, aren't
2: very happy to be at work
1: <laughs> yeah I didn't meet a female orthopedic surgeon until I went to residency so that I just that was and so I tried hard not to be one but that that's just like it gave me joy it's like where I was happiest and so it was funny because my husband and I went to high school together And when I was in medical school, I can remember saying, yeah, there's this thing called residency. And um, I'm not entirely sure what it is, but I know there's like a three year or a five year. And he's like, you're going to do the five year, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) And I was was like, maybe not, maybe not, you know. And then after like my third year in medical school, I'm like, yeah, so it's going to be the five year. I mean, I really like. Though and I so I I, he kind of didn't want he was hopeful that I wasn't going to train for that long but you know it is what it is and because of my background in sports medicine it was just so easy for me like anatomy in medical school I did not have to study for like I got an A just for showing up because I had already had three semesters of anatomy in undergrad and I'd already had three semesters of physiology and I had already done an entire, like, biomechanics. Um, and I knew every muscle in the body and every origin, insertion, and innervation before medical school because of my undergraduate degree in medical school. Wow. Or, yeah, I know. So, see? It was, like...
0: It was or definitely just, predestined.
1: I was just predestined to be an orthopedic surgeon.
0: So, what we're going to get What is a three-year residency?
1: What? Medicine? What is a three-year residency? Not yeah, medicine. medicine or... and, like, any medical
2: like um, family
1: practice um, right. a
2: regular non-operative sports medicine yeah if you don't go in, no. if, if you're not if you go in a
1: non-operative field you can be out and practicing if you want to do primary care in three years yeah but if, if you and want then to do, like, like, everybody medicine everyone, medicine. everyone like i knew was like oh so you're gonna come home to the upper peninsula of michigan and that's where you're gonna work and i was like yeah that's what i'm gonna do And now I live in Dallas, Texas. So yeah, about as far away as you could get.
0: Right. So, did you? um, We're going to get to mentors a little bit later. But did you have mentors then that sort of like pushed you along to get into ortho? Where did you find? Because, because I think it was Christine who mentioned that she didn't see a uh, a male orthopedic surgeon until she got to what residency? Yeah, no, that was That was you, Amy. I
1: think she had some, but it's kind of crazy that I even ended up here. Cause no, I didn't really in medical school. I really didn't have any true mentors that were orthopedic surgeons. I just had mentors that were like internal medicine or, you know, other people that I liked working with, but I didn't have a really good connection to any orthopedic surgeons, um, in medical school at all. But I did really well in all my rotations. I did really well on my um, you know, steps. And then I just, I guess, put myself in a position to be a good, reasonable candidate for orthopedic residency selection.
0: Gotcha. How about you, Christine? Did you have a big mentor that sort of pushed you into orthopedics?
1: You know, not really.
2: You know, UT has got so many people, so many students who go into to Ortho every year that, you know, they, they can recognize kind of who the strong ones are. Um, but I don't really recall having a specific mentor during that time. I do remember going in for my interview. And back then it was Bob because and Mary Bethazaki who were married, were you know, as, as most people know, are, were sitting there interviewing together. And he had obviously known who I was, you know, and, and I remember thinking, wow, that's amazing that he knows who I am. But I mean, I think that the, the difference um, you know, I think it's amazing that Amy was able to pursue that because I think it makes a big difference as a med- as a woman medical student, and especially back then in the mid 90s, that you're being told, well, women don't go into orthopedics. Well, aren't you kind of small? You know, you're not going to be strong enough. And you look around, and it's a bunch of you know, kind of bigger jockeys. Sort of guys who bench press, you know, more, way more than I do. I mean, I can only bench the bar. <laughs> and, you know, they had that year in residency, three of the five uh, PGY3s were women. And wow. it, that was a huge influence on. You know, seeing that and thinking, wow, because I could see them. And back then, you know, it wasn't like it is now. Like you could actually go out as a med student, hang out with the residents, and go with them to bars and do, you know, questionable things that you probably can't do now uh, because of, you know, because it, 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 of the way things uh, are a little bit, a little diff- bit of a different climate. But seeing that and and working uh, under Kim Mezera and kind of hearing her story and you know, and and that makes you think, well, yeah, they they did it. I mean, it's not a big deal. I can do this. And so. I do think that, you know, um, not just for women, but really any minority, seeing that representation makes you think, oh, well, they, they did it, I can do it, you know, and, and I don't know if I would have been strong enough to, you know, kept, you know keep persevering. I mean, it's a thought, it's, and it's something that, you know, you worry about, you think about. I remember I did one month actually semi out at, at Emory. They had just opened the new Grady, and I still remember the names of my PGY2s and 3s during my rotation. I had a great month. At Grady and at Emory. And uh, really, what it came down to with not ranking them higher is they had never had a woman resident before. And they kept saying, Well, you could be first. And I said, Well, I could be first, but I don't know if I want to be the first because I it's don't want to be last. Right. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think residency, especially before the ADR work week, was hard enough as it is. And I just didn't want to stack the deck to be any harder than it already was. You know, And when I got matched at USC LA County, that was perfect. I was one of three female residents in my class of ten, you know. And so I'm not, you know, saying that, you know, I, I that you, um, that you know, you should pick a residency based on whether there's women or not because you don't know, you know, uh, who's going to get matched in your class. But it definitely helped, and it's definitely something you notice, you know. As and I'm sure, you know, other minorities would say have a similar story.
0: Well, you'll be happy to know that we have uh, three women in our PGY two and one in our PGY one. We we were about to go back to the old days uh, here at Emory, but but we've sort of uh, restocked and we're pretty proud of that. Um, how about you, Amy?
1: You know what I was just thinking about? I just think I was really naive, and I just I, <laughs> I, mean, you I killed think
0: your that, own cows. I
1: like lived in some type of delusional alternate universe, and I think like. So then I'm going to interview right all over the place for residency, and it it never even occurred to me that I wasn't as good as anybody else who was in the room. But then it was funny. I'd like look at all our name tags, and I'd be like, "Oh, you went to Harvard," you know, great. (laughs) Oh, and that they'd be like, "Where did you go?" And I'd be like, "Michigan State." And they'd be like where is that? And I'd be like, uh, Michigan, you know, but, um, <laughs> I just think I was very naive, which is good because then I think I didn't, there was no, I, there was no, I didn't put any limitations on myself. And I honestly have, and this is maybe one of my fatal flaws, but I've, I've always thought I am as good as everybody in the room. Like it's never, it's never even been an issue with me thinking, Oh, I don't stack up or I'm not good enough. And so maybe it's just me. I'm like slightly delusional that way, but it's but it's served me well thus far. I always say self-confident.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, Christine, would you say then that there was a chip on your shoulder or you were, or did you have a sort of a similar approach?
2: You know, I don't think it was necessarily, um, you know, a chip on my shoulder. Unlike, you know, Amy, I was very aware of my perceived shortcomings. And I'll tell you, I didn't have great board scores. I mean, I did, and I didn't have a great GPA coming out of med school because my first you know, year, really, when I was trying to, I mean, it took me through ha- midway through MS two year to figure out how to memorize things. You know, engineering, you they throw you into a test, and it, a lot of times at, at MIT it was open book because they said this is real life. Real life is open book, and you're, you're evaluating your problem solving. You know, not your ability to memorize, you know, fifty different equations because in real life you'd be able to look that up. And so, you know, I. I was really concerned about matching because, you know, back then, um, you know, there were definitely programs that said, we've never matched a woman and we never match, will match a woman or that, you know, we have one. And when she graduates, we get another, you know, and so there, you know, I think that it was, um, so I was, I was very aware of, of my perceived, uh, shortcomings, which is also why I did it. I did like four away rotations because. Oh, wow. Because I knew that, you know, I had a very specific area that I did prefer to go to and I wanted to move out to California just because I'd never lived there before. And I'd already been in the East Coast and wasn't really ready to go back there anytime soon. And so I spent three months out there rotating at uh, L.A. County, USC, at Stanford and at UC Irvine. And it's very difficult to be on you know, on show for three months in a row and not be annoying or to, you know, let that fatigue show. But I was, I'm glad I did it because, you know, I ultimately ended up in a location I wanted to have been in a, in really almost a perfect residency for my personality. Um, but yeah, I do think that there is a little bit of, uh, you know, you have to work twice as well to Get the same amount of credit. That was definitely in the back of my mind. Um, and again, I feel like I was very fortunate. The residency that I was at, the women were overwhelmingly, extremely strong. There were two in the class above me, and a lot of the uh, attendings really recognized that. You know, the women were, you know, sometimes better than the men because they were, you know, more detail oriented and and were less likely to let things slip through the cracks. And you know, so, um, you know, it's. I was less, um, you know how, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever watched um, uh, 30 Rock, but uh, John Hamm plays this character when he dates Tina Fey and he's like in this bubble. And sometimes I kind of think that's kind of like Amy and Amy can still be like that where she's just got this like bubble <laughs> and she's hey, is in Amy land. And so I, I was less, uh, I, I, I think I have less of a bubble than she does. <laughs> I'm much more aware of, of, you know, my shortcomings and the way other people might, you know, have perceived me.
0: So I, I I want to uh, sort of in a, in a minute get to how you guys ended up in your sort of unique uh, specialties and impedes in, in general, but I, I want to continue along this line for a sec. So uh, I know, I think you were both at the uh, annual meeting when it was EPOS over in Barcelona, and they had that great uh, picture of uh, of all of the female members of Posna, which I, which was really cool, and it certainly within all of orthopedics, there's a unique balance of genders um, uh, that in peds ortho. Um, you know, I, you guys obviously both ended up here, but how, what do you attribute that to? Is it, is it the kids? Is it, you know, sort of the nature of the work? What, what do you attribute that that unique uh, balance of genders that, that does occur in peds uh, as, a composed, uh, as opposed to, say, adult spine or sports or something?
1: I mean, I can kind of talk about that. So I know, like, doing residency at Mayo, just rotating through the different subspecialties, I think we can all agree that certain subspecialties just seem, I don't know, a little more gentler and kinder. You know what I mean? Like, just attend, like at Mayo, attending the arthroplasty um, conferences. I mean, it's frankly aggressive. And the tumor conference was aggressive, but I like loved it, but it was aggressive. And, you know, I guess in general, PEDS Ortho has always just been a little more you know, accepting and kind and friendly, like you're teaching and you're, you know, asking the residents and fellows questions and seeing how much they know, but it's just done in a much more, I'll say, genteel manner. Um, I thought I was going to do sports because obviously with my background, I'm, it was like where I thought I was headed. And then I did um, a spine rotation, three months of spine but during that rotation, I took um, three months of uh, level one Peds trauma call and then I followed it with my Peds rotation. So I did six months of Peds call, you know, plus a lot of Peds spine. Um, and after that, I was sort of hooked because one, I really liked the people and I loved the patients and I loved taking care of the kids and getting to know their families. And then on top of it, I loved that it was so holistic in the fact that You're taking care of the whole child. You're not just doing, you know, knee arthroplasty or shoulder and elbow surgery. You're basically do. you're taking care of the whole child. And that is what hooked me is that sort of holistic approach inside of orthopedic surgery. So I don't know if that's why a lot of other women uh, choose it as a subspecialty field as well but that was like the real hook for me. And then I did also love that kids in general have no ulterior motives and they just want to get better, right? Their goal is just to play and they heal really well. And it's great to just see them, you know, get back to normal and get back to function. And so that's what hooked me. I don't know about Christine.
2: Well, I mean, I think you look, the two subspecialties that, um, uh, really seems to attract women are hand and peas, right and so why that is I mean I really couldn't say I do think you know perhaps some of that's a leftover uh, from the back when we thought well you know when when we were told was women that you're too small you're not strong enough you you know and and so picking things that are You know, obviously, you know, we have some children, though, that are about five times the size that that I am. I just operate on an arm of a girl who's 12, who was 250 pounds. Uh, My 12-year-old is 72 pounds soaking wet, my 12-year-old at home. So, you know, you know, I don't know that the size is is the reason, but there is something kind of interesting about why women would pick that. I don't know if it's the detail-oriented, delicate. For me, I always loved kids. I used to babysit. A ton uh, growing up, and so I always liked kids. And I really distinctly remember my pediatrics rotation uh, having one of my babies that I was rounding on, you know, kind of on my hip as I was writing my, you know, back then paper notes at, uh, you know, at six in the morning uh, to be ready for eight a.m. rounds. And um, so I, I actually thought I was going to go into spine, believe it or not, which you know now is seems funny, but but I really loved the anatomy. I really liked the instrumentation. I thought it was, you know, my the fine fellows when I did my rotation were like really cool, really fun. You know, I learned a ton. Um, and then when I did P. ortho, I was like, wow, this is like all of the fine and like none of the misery of like adult patients. And I really liked doing the other stuff too. You know, I liked doing all of it and I really liked the kids. And then what really kind of... Um, made me decide on P. Ortho was that the attendings there, you know, Vern Tolo, Dave Skagg, Bob Kay, they really seemed to enjoy coming to work every day. They really, you know, had such a joy for teaching and t- treating children. And they treated, you know, us as residents, as people who they were really interested in getting to know, not just gut workers that were there to, you know, so they didn't have to write notes. Um, and it was just every time I, we and we do that rotation three times during residency, and every time, you know, I went, I was like, "This is the, I mean, this is the most, yeah, you know, this is the most I've enjoyed a rotation, and this is the most I've enjoyed the attendings." And so, you know, again, I think that who you see ahead of you makes a and your experience makes a big difference, whether it's positive or negative, as to what you choose to go into, you know. And then I, so I went in thinking that I was going to be doing fine. And, you know, that that couldn't end up being further from the truth <laughs> of so what I'm doing now.
0: So you just never know. Um, so, so let me ask you a question. Um, you know, with that unique balance, um, and I think, Christine, you were saying that, you know, it was such that you had to work twice as hard to sort of come into a similar uh, uh, level with with some of the male uh, residents. Do you feel in peds ortho that there's a bit more equality, if you will? Do you think that that men and women, uh, pediatric orthopedists are treated equally within POSNA, within your institutions? Um, do you feel that that is something that's that's beneficial uh, or that that is perhaps appealing to, to residents as they come through? They may be seeing that.
2: I mean, it's hard to say because I can only speak for what our residents see at Scottish Right. You know, I've never been, I've never worked at another institution. So, yeah, you know, I always uh, say I'm, you know, completely institutionalized and Dan keeps saying, please stop telling people that you're institutionalized. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You know. I do know that, um, you know, we kind of also at UT Southwest went through a dry spell of not having a lot of women uh, residents, but that seems to have gotten a lot better. And uh, we just had three that com- came through. And I think two of the three are wanting to go into pee. Um, You know, isn't that right, Amy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think in general, I mean, if you're going to say orthopedics as a large generality from like the 30,000 foot view, there is, you know, institutionalized sexism. Like you cannot, you, it's just, it is what it is. It's a male dominated field like 3 to 5% of practicing orthopedic surgeons are women. So if you choose to go into that subspecialty and you don't understand that, then that's a problem. So I think every woman who chooses orthopedics knows that at a baseline. But then you can then go into and look at the different subspecialties and and see where you're more comfortable. And like we said, certain subspecialties definitely have more... um, female representation than others. And then you look at specific institutions around the country, you know, some, you know, are doing better on that front uh, than others. Um, So when I was at Mayo, before I got hired back, there were, there was one female on staff as an orthopedic surgeon. And then there was one female who had dual, uh, we'll say, a collaboration between radiology and orthopedics. And that's Doris Wenger, who is Dennis Wenger's youngest sister. So she's a really great musculoskeletal radiologist. So before I came back, there was essentially two women on a staff of over 50, 50. Um, But I also knew that coming in. And this is what I think. I think that if you just come in and again, like I think I have a delusional sense of the world. If you just come in and, You work really hard and you do your best and you try really hard every day. I think they quit looking at you as a girl. They just look at you as a partner because you're, you know, helping them and you're increasing the productivity of the department in general. So I think if you just come in and you do a good job and you work hard and you take really good care of patients, the whole gender gap goes away. And I think most people just think of me and Christine as partners, like we're their partners. I don't think they think of us as like, oh, she's our woman partner. I don't know what you think about that, Christine.
2: Well, I mean, I think that really in any institution, there is gonna be some unconscious bias. Um, I know that's kind of a, a buzzword. And I, I and I don't think that people realize it. They don't even think about it. And I can give you two examples. Um, you know, one is uh, when I was a fellow, as you know, Nick and Amy, you know, some of our partners have tickets to the MAPS, season games. And if there is a game that, you know, they can't make or the, their family can't make, they will offer those tickets, oftentimes for the fellows. I never got offered math tickets, not once during that year, unless it was for all four of us to go together. And so, you know, and I don't know if that's because, you know, I don't know, maybe those attendees don't like me. Or maybe, you know, they just thought, well, she's not interested in going to see the Mavs play. You know, um, another is very early on when I was a partner, and this is before you came, Amy, um, I found out that we were giving, and I think this started even, at some point in time, they started giving boots to the fellows as a graduation present. And the really nice custom-made boots that got the TSRH logo stamped on them, they must have started sometime after, I think, our class graduated. But I found out that those boots are only given to the male resident, the male fellows. And not the female fellows because they just only made them for men. And I said, well, then what do you give the do for the female fellows? They say, oh, well, we give those boots to their spouse. <laughs> or and I'm thinking, well, crap. I mean, my husband he's done his own fellowship, but he didn't do my fellowship, and I'd be pissed that yeah. at the pinnacle of my career, where I am graduating from one of the best pediatric orthopedic fellowships in the country, that you gave my boots to my husband. He didn't do a pediatric orthopedic fellowship. And, and I think it really blew some of my male partners' minds. Like, he, like, one of them was like, I don't understand. I said, I think you need to go talk to your wife and explain this situation. Because, you know, this for you to not even understand why this is so offensive and why this makes the women feel, you know, second tier, you need to, you know, you need to realize this. And actually, he did come back later and said, I talked to my wife, and you're right. And afterwards, and then they start talking about, you know, do we give, you know, a book bag or a person I said, look, I said, just get them boots. And so now all of the fellows get boots, <laughs> both the men and the women, not the women's husbands. <laughs> and this was something that, you know, I don't think of like my partners or, or Scottish right as being sexist, although I'm sure I've, I have heard that there's that, um that, um you know, I, it's, you know, we are from the south, and we are in Texas, and then perhaps you know the perception is we're not as progressive, you know. But those are just things where it's just unconscious bias, like they don't, people don't even know. And and so I think that you know, for us to have that responsibility and that confidence, and I was very early on in being a partner, and I didn't even know if I should say anything, even though I was like, you know, pissed. Um, but I, but I'm glad I did, and it changed, you know, for the better. Um, but I mean, I don't think they meant to be sexist; they just didn't realize. No one had ever told, called them out on it before.
0: Well, I'm, I'm, I, I can't imagine you. Am <laughs> I allowed your to tongue, tell that so. story? Am I going to yes, like, you get, are. No. <laughs> am I going to uh... get trouble by my uh, by scottish for telling that story? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I do. I, you know, one of the things that I sort of thought about is that um, there's one. Uh, aspect uh of the gender difference that i think to me has always struck me uh as as would be sort of m- even more difficult perhaps to manage uh were i to be a woman and and i suck at managing complications um and i i think that there uh, you know i'm a, obviously i'm a father um and i see my wife with my kids and i'm like complete family man but you know, there's there's that special bond between a mother and her children that, you know, is, as hard as I could ever try, I, I can't get. And I'm sort of curious, do you, you know, when when you have a complication, uh, is it perhaps even extra hard um, having a little bit of a maternalistic instinct?
1: I mean, I hate complications so much that I'm literally neurotic about preventing them. And I don't know where my hatred stems from if it's some maternal instinct in me, but they literally like nauseate me. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it literally breaks my heart sometimes when I get a complication. Um, and I don't know if that's a maternal instinct in me, but I think everybody is made differently. And I think everybody has a different barometer or level of acceptance of complications. And some people's is much higher Like they, they think it's okay to have a 10% complication rate as long as they're like advancing science and that they're okay with that. And then other people like me, I can't even, I can't even stand a 0.5% complication rate. Like I am crazy neurotic about it. So I think everybody's just built differently in regards to acceptance of complications. But I do think maybe females are built differently than males in that way, but not always um, I would say Brandon is just as neurotic about complications yeah, as you are, Amy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm super it's neurotic, so too.
1: I'm pretty neurotic, yeah. But, yeah, I'm, some of them just break my heart. Like, I practically cry, you know, which, you know, I don't know.
2: That was what ultimately kind of turned me away from spine is I, I have trouble sleeping at night after a complication. And I have trouble sleeping at night before a big case. And if my case doesn't go well, so maybe the kid doesn't get their whole elbow motion back. Maybe the head doesn't get seated 100% completely, you know, but I will still wake up five years later thinking about that kid that, boy, I wish I had done a better job on that on that case or that kid didn't really quite get to where I wanted them to. And so, you know, for me, if I had to do the kind of surgery that Amy does, and I don't, you know, even the best spine surgeon in the world is going to have some complications, no matter how meticulous. And careful you are, you know, and and I am thankful that I have partners that can take care of those patients and have a complication and wake up and go to work the next day and not be paralyzed, right? And I don't know that that would be me. I mean, I might be paralyzed. I might spend the rest of my life huddled under a sheet.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, I think, why Nick and I don't sleep well. No. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, seriously, I was going to say, Christine, clearly all of your cases have been going well since you slept 10 hours today.
1: marathon sleepers. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. No, I'm not a good sleeper. I'm a terrible sleeper. And it might be why, because I do think I'm subconsciously like always processing, you know, like my upcoming cases or even like my previous cases and stuff like that. But yeah, I'm I'm a bad sleeper, but it's OK. I'm like, it's OK. I was also going to bring up Nick. I thought this is where you're going with the question is just what it's like to be like an orthopedic surgeon, like pregnant and then like having a baby. And then, you know, then like how how you manage, you know, then raising the child and like getting back to work and all of that, because I think for a lot of women in orthopedics, that's one thing they, you know, have a lot of questions about or I would
0: call self-doubt about. Well, I. That's a, it's a great question. It was sort of uh, on my list, but I'd love to, if you could talk about that, both of you, because I think that that it's a, you're right. It's a question that uh, I've never been asked, but I'm sure you guys get asked a lot. Um, And I think it also speaks to a little bit to your marital balance. You guys have uh, obviously different um, uh, setups, if you will, within your marriages. Um, I know, Christine, your husband's a uh, shoulder and elbow or shoulder surgeon. and uh, Amy, uh, I believe yours, uh, your husband uh, stays He's at home, dad. right? He's
1: a stay at home dad yeah. So, I call him- so yeah
0: <laughs> so but how to, so I, I guess th- that's great because I think that that for people who are gonna be listening, that covers the whole gamut, right? Um so how does that how how do you get back to work? How do you, you know a- after after having kids and how yeah. do you work that balance out at home?
1: It's funny, Christine's husband just operated on my husband. So that <laughs> that was crazy. But it went And are still friends. Yeah, it went amazing. Um well, well, I feel hard. like I did it really bad. So I'm gonna tell people what I think they shouldn't do. And then <laughs> we'll see what Christine says. So I literally did four cases the day I delivered my first son. So I did four cases and then uh, but when you're pregnant, just because you're a doctor does not mean you just like you're you don't have any clue how to raise your child. You also have no clue about what's going on when you're pregnant. And so like just like my naivety about interviews for residency, I was like, maybe I just peed my pants or my water <laughs> broke right? <laughs> or it, my water broke. So I was like, no, nah, I just peed my pants that's normal. Right. And so then, you know, I just kept doing cases. And then when I got home, I was like, maybe, maybe, but then I was like, nah. So I just like, cause I wasn't having contractions. I was having like zero pain. So I just like, you know, kind of put my feet up and I actually told my husband to go to happy hour. Cause he like always liked going to happy hour with a couple of his buddies. So I'm like, yeah, go to happy hour. It's fine. And then I finally figured out like, no, I'm, that's my water. So I literally drove myself to the hospital and then I, you know, got checked out and they were like, yep, that's amniotic fluid. And I was like, perfect. That means we're having a baby. Amy, so
2: this of all the stories I know, I know about you, this is the most
1: Amy living so the bubble. And then I didn't even call my husband until like I was like <laughs> in a room and they were going to start like inducing me with Pitocin because I didn't, you know, he was having fun. So then you I just called really him and I was sure like,
2: that if you if you dragged him away from his happier, you want to make sure it's a real thing.
1: <laughs> exactly. It should not be a false alarm. So then, <laughs> then like when I was actually admitted and like, they were going to start yeah, pushing the Pitocin, I was like, I called him and he's like, I wonder where you were and why your car wasn't home. And I was like, yeah, I'm at the hospital. You know, we're definitely going to have a baby. So I would take a shower, you know, have some coffee And then he got there at like one in the morning and then we had like a baby at four in the morning. And then I did, I went back to work way too early. So I only took like four weeks off because at the time um, there was just three of us taking all the level one PEDS calls. And then I think one of the partners was like away doing a mission trip, which is amazing. So then while I was on maternity leave, the other partner was basically like going Q1 like while I was on maternity leave. And so I only took like four weeks, which is not good. And then the second time I had a baby, my daughter, my, this is also crazy. My husband, like 10 days before she was born, he had a transphenoidal pituitary resection because he had an ACH, um, ACTH secreting pituitary tumor. So he had like quasi brain surgery And then I, again, didn't take a ton of time off. And then I left my husband who had just had brain surgery basically at home with our newborn daughter. So I'm going to put that whole like scenario into the don't do it the way I did it situation. Um, And then the funniest part that that whole corollary is like when I was leaving Mayo to go to Scottish Rite, I was trying to tell the chair like I needed to talk to him because I was going to be leaving and I, he's a busy man. So I was like, I just need like five minutes of your time. And so finally I caught him. And he, this is the funniest thing. He goes, You're not going to tell me you're pregnant again. And I'm like, And I literally go, No, no, not pregnant, but I am leaving. And he literally said, I'm not sure what's worse. And I said, Well, I guess it just depends on your opinion of the situation. <laughs> Okay, nobody would ever
2: tell a man (laughs) if he said his wife is pregnant. I mean, it's like you you just, men would never get that. You would never get that. (laughs) Nick, no one would ever say that to
1: you. I think (laughs) think Nick and Christine agree the way I handled our children's delivery. And like, I, you know, unfortunately, my poor husband, um, I mean, you can definitely do it better than that. So, but my children are healthy, you know, and they love me. I'm, you know, it's funny. Children just love their mom so much, and my husband, I think, has forgiven me. So, you know, it's
0: great. I mean, people may ask why? Why did you guys? Why did you want to get Christine and Amy on the podcast? That's why I wanted to get Christine and Amy on the podcast. Don't right get there,
1: stories like but, that.
0: A story like that. Nope, nope. <laughs> I love Men Coker, but no, no stories like that with Men Coker. <laughs> um, Christine, how about you?
2: So I would agree with Amy. I also made the mistake of only taking off a month after my first. And it was for what several what I thought were good reasons at the time. I was in the middle of my board's collection period and they weren't very lenient about being able to take a break during that time. That was one. Uh, I think that they've, they've gotten better from what I've heard uh, and seen on kind of the women of seek Facebook page that has gotten better. Two, there were only four of us that were on uh, on call during the day for the level one. And so for me to drop off for an indefinite amount of time for more than a month was really a big burden on those other three partners. And so there was some guilt to that. And then, you know, number three, I was, I felt pressured to show that I wasn't going to lose my rhythm and drop the ball just because I had a kid. And I was the first one, actually, the first surgeon at Scottish Rite to actually have a kid when employed as, as, you know, Lori had her kids when she was um, at the shrine in Sacramento. And Mary Beth had her kids when she was uh, actually UT Southwestern attending before Scottish Rite had their own staff. And so I was actually the first one to come through and be like, ha ha, guess what guys, I'm pregnant. And there was also some of that question of trying to combat that perception that literally I got hired I started my job in June and I was pregnant by August or September and we because you know, we were I was older I was you know in my mid you know early 30s and you know and that's that is a problem that women face more than men Is you feel like well once we got married my husband and I had been together for five years so you know everyone said go ahead and get started on trying to have a baby six months before you think you want to have a baby. And so I stopped birth control and this was the first egg that came out in like (laughs) 10 plus years. And that was the one. (laughs) And, And so it happened a little bit sooner than, than we thought. And, and you know, some people made not so subtle underhanded remarks about, you know, getting pregnant right away and, you know, already, you know, I'm going to be on maternity leave and we just, I just started. And so I felt all of those pressures to come back after a month. And it was like the worst decision, you know, uh, you know, I ended up having a C-section because of breach. So it was scheduled so I could plan it. So this again, very much Unlike Amy, you know, everything in my life is very planned and scheduled and on the calendar. So I really enjoyed the fact that because my son was reached, I got to know, uh, you know, when he was coming. And I got to put in the time and I knew when to show up. And that at this certain time, the baby was going to be there. And I could put on some makeup and put on some lip gloss, And people later said, your pictures look really good. And I said, that's right. That's right. Schedule C-section. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, so we were there over Memorial Day weekend, which is when my son was born. And then that Tuesday that we went home, literally we get home and my husband turns around and starts walking out the door. And I'm like, where are you going? He goes, well, now that you're home, I scheduled a clinic this afternoon. So, bye. (laughs) How'd that go over? (laughs) Well, you know, what do you... Yeah, what are you gonna do? (laughs) Yeah, and 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 he said, you know, your mom is home, which is true. He said, so it's not like I'm just leaving you, but I did schedule a clinic, and I said, I noticed you waited until now to tell me this. (laughs) Um, you know, and so that was a, but but only taking off a month, that was a bad decision. I cried, you know, coming into work, and I don't cry very easily, and it was just very overwhelming, and it was just a really bad summer. That summer, I we had like. Three lawnmower kids in various stages of amputation and wound back at any given time. It seems that entire month that we're constantly taking back. And so I, I would agree with Amy. This is in, in under the don't do this. You know, I would definitely take off more as much time as possible. Because um, I will tell you, I don't really remember anything about my son's first six months. The, my first real kind of memory of being cognizant of what's going on was probably not till after. Of Halloween, maybe November of that year. I mean, my I, I would see kids back in the clinic, and I really distinctly remember saying, "I don't know who this is," and my nurse saying, "You operate on them." I said, "No, I didn't," and she said, "Yes, you did," and she'd show me that and I'm like, "Oh, that is my name on the operating." I guess I just that. <laughs> you know, and it's really just it's a blur. It's a blur, and I think that you know I probably was just a zombie at work, and I was a zombie at home, and me being a type A overachiever and not willing to admit that I'm going to fail at something, I pushed through and I breastfed for a year.
1: Wow. We had to start supplementing at six months. I did not, Nick. So the minute but, yeah. I... I if you're you're really brain, brain, own cows? Yeah. If you're a spine surgeon, the minute you start doing spine surgery, the breast feeding's over. <laughs> so, yeah. like <laughs> It just is the way it is. So my poor children, I was telling Christine... You know, they got a lot of formula starting early, but they seem okay. They seem okay. But I did, this is another (laughs) funny story. I did like bring my breast pump to work because, you know, I was like, I'm going to try to do this. And I just remember walking in and one of my partners, who I love dearly, he goes, what do you got in the bag, Amy? And I was like, it's a breast Want to see it? I was like, I'm like, it's super efficient. It's super high pressure, so it doesn't take long. And he was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I, asked.
2: I had a partner tell me not to put my breast milk in the fridge.
0: <laughs> Did you put it in they his office? Breath,
2: they didn't want my breast Well, I brought a little cooler. And I had, there was also a second, like, um, like almost like a dorm fridge. And that's what I use with this dorm fridge. So that way my breast milk wouldn't have to be in the same, the same space as other, as other people's lunch.
0: <laughs> so let me ask you a question. And I, uh, I, I had Noel on the podcast a couple months ago and so and um, a friend of mine had asked that I uh, asked her about this and I forgot to, but, do you feel like, uh, Christine, because you were talking about sort of the first six months, um, and I certainly have a ton of like regret and guilt, despite the fact I think my kids love me and we have a great relationship. But do, I? I my guess is it's probably just inherent to all of us and what we do that we, you know, there's that fear of missing out. And the, in this case, the fear of missing out on your kids' lives. Do you feel that maybe a little bit extra, Um from uh, uh as a mother then then maybe i would
2: so i know it's probably time, hard to quantify right? all the time if you look at like the parent associations for the schools it's 99.9 percent run by women and even some women who work right a lot of those women they have the kind of jobs where they can schedule a meeting at 11 and as long as they're not seeing a client or they have a meeting at work where they block down their schedule they can run down and and you know do the lp you know do a a parent association meeting and then run back. We don't have those, those kind of jobs, right? So I have chosen to concentrate my to giving time at the school to things that I enjoy and things that I can uh, do around my schedule. So, um, like, with the carnival, I help them do a casting tent, right? So I can do that. I can email the rep on my, you know, at night or on the weekend and get the stuff ready, and that, that doesn't require me to, like, you know, you know cancel surgery or you know leave clinic at 10 in the morning you know um i also went down to after my second and um i went down to four days a week and just took a and i took a cut in salary so we, we are salaried; salary we are still a socialist communist society at Scottish Right. and uh, i just took that cut and it was for me the best um decision ever you know i got to do things like volunteer at the media center which is what they call the library nowadays and i you know, stack books, and I get to see my kids' friends, and I check their books out, and, you know, I get to learn their names, and I get to see the teachers who come in with their classes for media center time. I work at the student stores on those days. I volunteer at the cafeteria, and so for me, you know, and then I get to, I always have to tell my son, hey, I'm working in the cafeteria. I come by and say hi, and he kind of comes by, and he's like, hi, mom, and then walks, right. walks off, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, and then I get to meet the other parents as well, and so you know, I I, I have really um, enjoyed that time. You know, I don't do it every Friday, but I have those. I mean, obviously none of that stuff is happening now. But um, for me, I that is the balance that I've chosen to be able to say, I um, am at work when I'm at work, and when I'm not at work, and I have this this special magical day, I do these kind of things and pretend like I'm i I'm a stay at home mom, and I get to that time with my kids school and with my kids or even just you know stuff like having lunch with friends which is what i did yesterday too um so i there's definitely my husband does he feel any of that feeling that boy he sure is missing out because he's not serving school lunch zero absolutely zero (laughs) yeah but i I, you know i enjoy it i enjoy it it's fun i i like seeing my kids at school school, but there is always that FOMO, fear of missing out, and that's where I do think it's easier when you're in attending, right, because if I know ahead of time, we don't do last minute. We do not do last minute in this house. This house, the kids know, if you have a project, you have to tell mommy before the weekend because we have the weekend to get stuff. We do not go to Joanne Fabrics at 9 o'clock on a school night because everybody has to go work the next day, so so we... um, So we really try to, you know, have things be scheduled and have them be planned and know ahead of time. So if I know, guess what, the Christmas... Uh, you know, or the, I guess what they call the all school program at the end of the um, first uh, half of the year is this year moved to a Thursday instead of a Friday, which has been for the past 10 years. I know that ahead of time, the second schedule comes out. I I go through my calendar, I send emails. I'm starting late this day, or can you just move my whole OR day from Wednesday to Thursday, or what have you, to make those accommodations, to make the few few, things that happen at school that are important that I make them because my husband very rarely, uh, you know, is able to do that. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't have, you know, you know, and, and there are things I still send the nanny to that I'm like, okay, that's just not really worth my time to shuffle my schedule around and I'll send the nanny to that and she'll be my representative. And that worked out pretty well. But I mean, like the type of the school schedule comes out, I'm on it.
0: Yeah. We, I'm sure Amy, you're the
1: same way. No. Yeah. So she, <laughs> we don't have any because my husband stays home and it's so funny. He literally has no desire to be at the school. <laughs> it's oh, yeah, so is, right. Yeah. They'll, they'll like ask him and he'll just be like, you know, if you really need me, I can do something. But it that just does not bring him joy. But like what it's funny though, for knowing he's home, with you know and available just brings me peace so like I because as we all know like if you're in the OR operating on another person's child and the school calls to tell you your kid has a fever I'm not going to be the one picking that child up because you, you can't your ultimate responsibility is first and foremost to that child who's asleep on your table and so having rich available just helps bring me some like inner peace knowing that their dad is there to get those things. But yeah, he doesn't enjoy being at the school. He will coach and um, this is hilarious. There's like a large field um, by our house that the city of Dallas owns. And one day a John Deere riding lawnmower showed up in my driveway And we don't have a yard big enough for uh, riding lawnmower. No, not even close. Not even close.
2: Your lawn, you could do a push lawnmower. Right.
1: And so now my husband mows this, like, two-acre field by our house. And he has, like, created a field of dreams. And now, because especially in COVID, because you can't find public fields available, all of the neighborhood kids, like, run – outdoor practices there and it's like he's the field manager so I feel like that's what you know that's his way of giving but yeah I mean I never go to the school I my son said he's going into sixth grade and when he was in fifth grade I think I brought him lunch one day and he goes mom do you know you haven't um, come to see me at lunch since I was in kindergarten and I was like that's about right and you know I'm okay. I'm personally like, okay with that. Like it doesn't bother me, but it is funny when I do go to the school for something, whether like last year I gave a talk for career day. And so I ended up in my daughter's class and I talked about orthopedics and like scoliosis surgery. And I showed magic rods and things like that. And the kids literally were like touching me, like to make sure I was real. And it was like, my daughter's name is Campbell. They're like, Campbell does have a mom. you know? <laughs> so, I, mean, I mean, that's kind of sad, but it is what it is. And then the other thing I think I do notice is that I really don't actually know a lot of the other parents in the school and I'm not, it doesn't bother me though, but like I, ha- I know my friend's parents and then like when we're talking, they'll say, oh, do you know so-and-so? And I'll just be like, no. That's the greatest thing about me. I really don't know anybody, and and it, but it doesn't bother me. Like I'm totally okay with it. Um, and I did do a casting thing for a fall carnival. Like I cast, we put fake casts on like four hundred kids one day, which was crazy. Yeah, but yeah, was a lot of fun. Yeah, it is, and that I agree with Christine. Like I just have to pick and choose the things that I think are really important to the kids, and then I try to make time for them, and they understand that I'm not there that their dad is available. And I think that if you, you know, explain it to them ahead of time, they, I think my kids really understand and appreciate what I do during a day. And they'll say, yeah, like mommy's not home all the time, but she, you know, she fixed the kids bad back today or something. And I think that makes them a little bit proud. Um, and I think you just have to set whatever realistic expectations you can set for yourself and for your kids. Cause you literally cannot do everything. But on the side note, when I am home, my husband says like, I'm chaos because literally I think I have so much mother's guilt. Like anything is possible, Nick. Like they're like, <laughs> they're like, they're like, can we get up at five in the morning? You know, and this was pre COVID in one day, can we, and it was like, and I'd be like, yeah. Let's do it, you know. And so, I I do think the mother's guilt. So when, when is, Rich
2: rolling his Rich, eyes. Rich, I'm like,
1: are you coming, hon? He's like, hell He's like, no, no. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm here. Solid, solid. I'm here. No, but, I'm,
2: gonna mow, I'm gonna mow the field.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put on my <laughs> my <laughs> and listen to some red, white, and booze, and I'm gonna mow, and you can go do the crazy. I mean, it's like Phineas and Ferb at our house. It's like the whatever you think up of. Yeah. Nothing's impossible, Nick. Nothing's impossible.
0: Oh man. I think it's that's be because I think it's
1: because of the mother's guilt, but I'm okay with it. So then all the friends are like, Your mom is the greatest, you know, but they don't they don't see the days when you don't get home till, you know, eleven o'clock at night or midnight, right? Like they don't see those days. They just see, you know, the fun, the fun mom.
0: Yeah, the the you can do anything you want. Mom. And then
1: they're like, "And you're a doctor, so like, if we hurt ourselves, you can basically fix it." And I'm like, "Well, I can fix everything except for your brain, so don't hurt that." You know, or
0: your hand, but, <laughs> I, know I, do, but I know
1: someone who can fix that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So so let me ask you this: You guys uh, are both obviously at a, a very academic institution. How does that play in? Because there's a lot of travel. I mean, I think that's the thing that I notice uh, most. I, almost during this whole COVID thing is that all of a sudden, you know, I don't get to do post with Christine this year. You know, we don't get to do I post together this year. Um, and, but the, the travel's hard and the travel I bet is especially hard. Like when you've got young kids at home and as a mother, right.
2: So I think it was a lot harder, you know, now, now the kids, my kids, they just accept it. Right, they just know. I have to, and my husband, the kind of job he has, he doesn't take call. He's in private practice. He has a subspecialty practice. When he is home at night, he is home. He's not going back in. He's not getting calls in the middle of the night. He doesn't take call on the weekend because Baylor has traumaologists that take calls. So when he's home, he's home, and so that really helps because there's still, you know, a parent at home. You know, I think Amy has done a better job trying to partition what she will go to and what she won't, and I'm, I still kind of. Go to a lot of things, you know, when the kids were younger, I just remember like coming back from ASSH and uh, giving my son a bath and he was probably 18 months, two years, and um, I brought him back these little ducks from, you know, make way for ducklings and they were little tub 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 toys. And he's playing with them, and he goes, "Okay." He goes, "This is the daddy duck, and look, here's you know, here's the baby duck, and daddy duck and baby duck are here, and oh, here's the mama duck." And he puts the mama duck in the corner of the bathtub, facing <laughs> the tile, and he goes, "Mama duck, she's at a, she's at a meeting in Boston." <laughs> and it's one of those oh, things- good boy. You cringe. I mean, he doesn't do that now. He's twelve. So, but yeah, they they know they accept it. I I do think that I could be more like Amy and be better at trying to pick and choose what I go to. Um, you know, Amy says she just limits herself to two meetings a year. I, I don't go to a meeting anymore unless I'm on the podium, which sounds like an incredibly academically snotty thing to say. Um, but but that's kind of you know that 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 that's what i do and and um yeah it is hard it's hard it's i like it more now because most of the societies have gone to where you are home by saturday night instead of extending it all the way to sunday and i think that makes a huge difference that i can if i depending on where it is i can be home in time for dinner saturday and we
1: have all of sunday together so amy do you want to talk about your yeah, so like Christine said, I try to be limit how many meetings I actually um, attend and for what reason. So I'll always like attend Pose Nine, usually I pause, and then a lot of times I'll attend like ICHOS, which is you know Nick the Early Onset Schooling meeting and SRS. But you have to admit sometimes there's a lot of overlap in those meetings in what gets presented at the podium and. Um, So sometimes I'll just um, pick and choose and I won't do all of those. I'll just do one or the other. Um, And then I did do a traveling fellowship. So I was gone for three weeks and I really think it was worth it and I loved it. But being away for that period of time was it was pretty hard on the family. And some of the traveling fellowships are like six weeks. Um, So those I think are always difficult decisions. But that's what I like. I literally said
2: to Anil, you know this traveling fellow? And he's like, no.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> my, my wife continuously asked me so you're not doing that right you're not and i mean it's it's hard okay. it's I, a long time away
1: yeah i held out nick for the new zealand australia hong kong yeah, that's pretty good that's the one to hold out for but yeah yeah but it is i mean it was like 21 days and it was like real it was great and it was totally worth it but i mean that's a long time to be away from one your family and then to your practice right so yeah i definitely and i think it I don't know that like the people who, you know, at Scottish right. I bet they would wish I would do more meetings. But I think there's you have to find balance and you have to do what's right for you. And so I go to the meetings that I, I think are going to help me learn the best. Like I'm going to learn the most from the podiums that are being presented. And of course, if I'm um, presenting Um, but I, I, I don't go to like six or eight meetings a year. Like I just, I can't, it's just so much plus the time away from my practice. I don't know about you, but it seems like when you go away to these meetings, you have to work twice or three times as hard when you get back to like catch up instead of if you would have just worked that week, you would have been fine.
0: Yeah. And I tend to find I'm so distracted at the meeting because like, if I go on a vacation, I try to really step away and not answer my phone and tell everybody I'm leaving. But I tend to be, you know, we're all sitting in that hall watching a lecture and you're on your computer. So I'm sitting there answering emails and that's probably double dipping and not helping either either side. I think it's there's not an easy way. You know, it's interesting. I've asked almost everybody who's come on the podcast about work-life balance. And one of the things I've learned is we're all not very good at it um and and there are solutions differently
2: i don't think anyone feels that they've got it like that they've got the magic answer and perhaps the magic answer is different for everybody i don't think anyone feels like i'm really killing it as far as work life balance
0: although Jack jackson comes pretty close okay ready but i asked him about it and he doesn't think he is it's amazing
1: covid has really helped my work life (laughs) yeah Yeah, totally totally. like like, my kids my kids are like they love covid because one they don't have to go to school and two I'm home <laughs> so much more you know yeah so, right.
2: we're not traveling and then our weekends even if I'm if I am not traveling are packed with various meets and games and birthday parties and rushing from here and rushing to there and now I really nothing.
1: I know. And it's, it's nothing. And it's
2: also, it's, I mean, not that I don't want soccer to start, but I kind of enjoy not getting up and being at the field at eight in the morning. And, right. Uh, I feel
1: like we all got caught up in the rat race with our kids. Like even when we were home, we weren't spending like really quality time with them. We were just shuffling them to a million different things on a weekend. Yeah. And it was frankly exhausting. Right. And then COVID it's happens. And it's like, I tell my kids, I'm like, yeah, COVID is like mommy growing up in the upper peninsula of Michigan on 200 acres in the middle of nowhere in the 80s. That's COVID, you know, what I mean? yeah. so that's like social distancing at its greatest. And so I I feel like I we just are getting back to a more simpler time. And I don't think it's totally bad. I think we can all take a lot of positive things about the social distancing and the pandemic and have them like continue in our life going forward. So frankly, I am more balanced now than I've ever been because of COVID.
0: Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, it's one of those sort of silver lining things. Um, I I, wanted to, I have a couple other things that I want to talk about because I, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I'm having a blast. And also it's 5.15, so it's five, five o'clock somewhere in case you need a reason. Um, oh, I, I,
2: I don't think we need a reason. But, it, yeah. you know, I feel like this has been so enjoyable despite the fact that you're like, oh, we've been taking so long. I mean, it's, it's like the time that that I miss about going to pose and I pose and seeing my friends and having that drink at the hotel bar and catching up and how are you and what have you been doing? And, you know, that, that I really, I really do miss. I really do miss that about the meetings. More so the educational part, is that, is that bad to say?
0: (laughs) This was the, uh, you know, this interview was one that I had, Oh, I'd kept pushing off. This was supposed to be like, uh, this POSNA, as you know, cause I really wanted to do this in person, but now I don't know when yeah. that's going to happen. I said, screw it. We're just and gonna then I is
2: now is now been yeah. canceled. And yeah, I mean, we don't know when we'll be able to meet again. Hopefully 2021.
1: It's going to be POSNA Dallas 2021. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Hopefully fingers crossed. Fingers so,
0: crossed. so I wanted to ask, get back a little bit to career based things and, um, uh, you both have a little bit of a unique occurrence that happened in your careers. It's, it's a different, it's not the same thing, but um, Christine, you trained to be a PEDS hand surgeon, but your at, which involves a lot of congenital stuff, but there was a, 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 you know, major portion of your career that did not involve, as far as I could tell when I was a fellow, much congenital at all. And I'm sort of curious how you dealt with that and, um, you know, how that's worked out now that you're what 15 years into practice,
2: yeah. So it's been interesting. My practice has continues to change. Um, you know, when I uh, first came on, it was really in a much of a trauma capacity, similar to Lawson, Copley, Phil Wilson, and Dave Sedeslin. And I was the fourth person, and we all kind of did our little side gigs on the side. Like Bill did his sports, and Lawson did his infection, and you know, uh, Dave did his hips, and I kind of did my hand and upper extremity stuff. And then so as the practice, cha- you know, and, and I'm kind of like, you hire me, this is a job you want me to do. Okay, I'll do that. I can, you know, I can do that. And so then as the practice changed and we got more partners and I decided to only work four days a week, it was natural for me to drop off that trauma part, that trauma day and give it to one of our you know, newer partners. And then I started doing, you know, which opened up a lot more time um, and uh, opportunity as well as clinic slots because they weren't you know, full of all of these supercarnelar follow-ups uh, to see, you know, more of the upper extremity things. Now that said, the vast majority of the congenital hands that does tend to still go to Scottish right, but I will still get, you know, you know, duplicated thumbs and thumb hypoplasia and, you know, radial oner and mad lungs. I still do get those things uh, in my clinic. And so um, for the, I guess, a period of about, you know, six, seven, eight years, I uh, developed more of that side of my practice. And then about, gosh, how long has it been now? Three years, four years? uh, I took over as the division director uh, for our department uh, at Children's Health Dallas, which is the level one where we do all the trauma. And so now, as part of that and going kind of back in the mix of taking that that trauma block call and uh, seeing those kind of patients... Now my practice has shifted, you know, back more towards, uh, trauma. And so I would say, you know, in that interim time, I was doing probably 80% to 90% hand and upper extremity and the rest was the stuff I would get on call and the stuff I would book from clinic to, you know, to fix, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, and now I'm kind of back to 50, 50. Um, so, and it's just kind of what the job has required and, um, you know, and I'm happy to, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of a, you know, people will laugh when I say I'm mean, a yes man, I'm a role follower, because I kind of actually am. I mean, I'm kind of loud and obnoxious, but I ultimately am a role follower. And, and you say, hey, we need someone to, to do this. And, you know, yeah, I can do that. And so uh, my practice has kind of changed again. And so the one thing that I've now uh, learned is, you know, the job will change. I mean, I feel like if Dan turned to me and said, we're going to need you to start doing spine, I'd be like, Okay, well, it's gonna take me a really long time. And you say, I'll travel, travel, I, like you know? I could still I'll... go in and I could probably do a linky one. I would find you a double script with Amy the first few times. But I feel like I could go back there and get into it if I had to, right? If you, you said, hey, now, uh, you know, something happened with Phil, we need to go and do more sports. Do you wanna, uh, well, you know, I might do some cadavers, but yeah, I guess I could do that too. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I feel that, you know, I, is my uh, practice pattern, you know, is still changing, which also still makes it interesting. And then the new leadership stuff uh, makes it interesting too.
0: <laughs> so, so, but uh, I guess the question then is, are, are there regrets about the fact that the, the change in practice has not necessarily been something entirely organic? In other words, it wasn't something that, that was your choice. You have, uh, you've been incredibly adaptive to the surroundings and the needs of the, of the group but do you miss the ability to do some of the congenital stuff that you trained for?
2: Yeah. I wish I did more of it. You know, there's no doubt. I definitely wish I did more of it. So I could, you know, I could go back to five days a week, but I don't know that that, that I want to do it that badly. (laughs) Right. I shouldn't say that.
0: (laughs) Now, uh, Amy, so you're the sort of unique situation you had was that you were in a, you know, thriving, uh, multi-specialty position up at Mayo, right? You did it. I mean, I remember, I think before I uh, graduated from fellowship, like what listening to you talk about discoid meniscus or something like that. And my guess is it's been a little while since you've done that. And you mentioned your background uh, in sort of in that, you know, sports area. Did you struggle a bit coming down to Dallas and being just a spine person? um was it the mothership calls and so you answer
1: so what it was at mayo is i did everything um so i i did spine still so like when i started there none of the other partners really wanted to do sports and i was sort of like happy to do it um because you know just coming out of residency i feel like that's something we all feel really comfortable with um and so i told them like if you don't want any of it you can send it all to me and I'll do all like the skeletally immature stuff. And if the adult guys want to take on the clothes, feisty stuff, I was happy to share that. So I kind of took on a Pete sports role, but then I continued to do everything. So I did spine, you know, I did hip dysplasia. I did, um, you know, club feet. at Mayo. You can't do hand because they have a very strong hand department. So anything um, carpus and below belong to the hand surgeons. And then also kind of like the adult arthroplasty guys, they kind of owned the PAOs um, because of Raphael Sierra and Rob Choose So then um, if I thought someone needed a PAO, I just would, you know, either have them come to the case with me or send it to them. So, but I was like the first person at Mayo to Metacast. I was the first person to do a Vector. I was the first person to put in a meta, uh, meta, a magic rod, sorry. Um, So I still did spine. I just didn't do the volume that you get at Scottish Rite. So then when I came to Scottish Rite, it was kind of perfect because they were like, well, what do you do? And I was like, well, what do you mean? What do I do? And they're like, well, what do you do? I'm like, well, I do everything except for hand. And they're like, what? I'm like, tell me a case. And so the beauty of me was I could do whatever they wanted me to do. And they were basically like, well, we don't want you to do sports anymore. And I'm like, that's fine. I was I never did two fellowships. I only did the Scottish Rite fellowship and I just had a lot of sports background and Phil and Henry wanted all of that. And then basically at Scottish Rite, um, spine is like drinking from a fire hydrant. I mean, there's just so much volume, but because I had already been in practice for seven, almost eight years, like I did my last spine at Mayo on June 30th. And then I did my first spine at Scottish Rite, like um, July 27th. Oh wow. Yeah. So like basically, and it was just more, way more volume. Like I would say at Mayo, the most spine I do in a year was maybe like 30, 35 cases. And now, you know, I do like at least 80. Yeah. But then the is because I still, I still really like, I love doing trauma. Like Christine knows I really like trauma. So I go over and I do trauma on Wednesdays. And then I love, I love having a lower extremity day, Nick, I don't know about you, but like, uh, Thursday, I did a distal femoral extension, derotation, I did some eight plates, I did a club foot. Like, I really like having the ability to have like a non spine day, because like we talked about, you know, I think I don't sleep great. And I think the amount of probably internal self conscious, like mind, just reeling is a lot Higher when I have big spines than if I'm just doing a like a lower extremity day. So I won't give up, and I think it bothers my partners. I won't give up anything. <laughs>
0: like I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same out. way. You know, I almost think it's uh, part of it is the fellowship. Yeah, um,
1: they teach you know, me to be a general orthopedic surgeon, yeah. right? I won't, I won't give up benign bone tumors. I won't give up club feet. I won't give up hips. I won't give up lower extremity. Although I will, the one thing I will give up is I will give up bunions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's so funny it's the only thing <laughs> i've never operated on a bunion and I've, Amy, really, I've been in practice 10 years i've never yeah, touched a bunion i never I, saw I, it in fellowship and i, I just don't do it yeah,
1: it's just such it's ripe for problems and then i will, yeah. i give up the frames because i feel like dave Padeswa and lane wimberly and the whole like scottish right frame program with like the russians and everything is the russians, so yeah. like it's it's i just i get so i give up the frames so every once in a while, I'll trade Wimberly like a 400-pound blounce patient for, <laughs> for uh, like congenital scoli. Like we'll do a little switchy-roo. Um, yeah. But
0: I, th- I think you make it out yeah, okay but, on that.
1: So I always tell people like if you in your first five to seven years of practice can try to stay as general as possible like I did, then the opportunities for your future are almost endless because – literally you still do everything instead of like boxing yourself into a corner where you just do this. And then sometimes the job opportunities in the country or where you want to live aren't available for that little niche thing, but they are for other things. So, so I think it worked out well for me just because at Mayo, I, I literally did everything.
0: So, yeah, so uh, I just
2: remember very early on Phil Wilson saying you need to decide what it is that you want to do and in, in this practice and own it. And if you decide you want to be the hand and upper extremity person, we will send you all of our post-traumatic complications and problems and you can be that person. But if you don't want to be that person, you know, that's, you know, you need to decide that early on. And so I kind of decided, well, you know, I think I, think I am going to be that person. And then when uh, we had Suzanne Simon as a fellow and she kind of went on a similar path and um, you know, she was asking me for advice when she started out in practice in Seattle. And I said, well, the one thing that I found is once you kind of hang your shingle and say, I will take all of your upper extremity stuff that you don't want to do, then it's me- it very quickly pushes everything else out of your practice. If you have a practice niche that most people have no interest in treating themselves. And that happened happened much more rapidly than I thought it was going to. And, you know, pretty soon you get to where, well, am I really the best person to open this hip because I haven't done one in a year or 18 months? Or is my partner so-and-so who does that routinely? He's probably the one I would want my kid to see. I wouldn't want my kid to be treated by, you know, and so... It, it kind of, once you start, you know, and so the opposite of what Amy's saying, Amy's saying, stay as general as you can, because you're, you can go anywhere. And, and I'm very, very niched out. Like if I ever left Scottish writer, or if, if, you know, Scottish Wright told me to go take a hike, I'm very niched out of trying to find places that, that would want some of my practice patterns.
0: Well, uh, I mean, it's so great that you guys are, are, are so disparate on that uh, and different, but it, you almost wonder whether or not it's just because you chose hand. I mean, if I said, "Hey guys, I'm going to take all the spine. You don't have to worry about it anymore," they'd be like, "Yeah, that's not going to happen." But really? if I said, "Hey, I'm going to take the post traumatic elbow stiffness," yeah, they'd be like, "Yeah, that's all yours." So I, yeah, it's, it's sort of an interesting thing.
2: You pick something, and I didn't realize that so few people really wanted to do that kind of stuff. Not and, and yeah. it's it's been interesting, you know, and it's interesting because. It, it's a area that falls in with the plastics as well as uh, ortho. And then even within that, there's a division, not even division, but there's definitely those who went through kind of the ASSH hand fellowship, CAQ, and those who come from it from a piece ortho background. And so, um, you know, it's, it's been interesting to kind of see even with certain problems, uh, how other people approach it. Um, You know, there's this, uh, the chair at Yale, Lisa Lapanza, she has this really interesting practice that is, you know, almost like cradle to grave with elbows. And she's kind of like my go to person for bad elbows. I mean, because she has got such experience. And so you kind of it's it's a really interesting niche to kind of find yourself into because, yeah, nobody wants post-traumatic elbow symptoms Everybody sees a fish chill, and they're like, you need to go see Christine.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But nobody sees a 55 degree right thoracic curve and goes, you need to go see Amy. Right, so they right,
1: They do. Yeah. They do. But it's so funny. Like we were, we just hired on a new partner. And I was like, are you going to do spine? And he's like, I'd like to do AIS. I'm like, yeah, you and the rest of the world, buddy. Like, I was
0: like, let me introduce you to Charlie's practice. Yeah,
2: I was like, right, you know, right, right. How would you like to take over the gray practice?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I laughed so hard. I was like, so you can do AIS, but you have to see everything. And if there's things that you don't want to take care of, you can send that to me or you can send it to somebody else. But you don't only get to see AIS because that is a privilege none of us have. And he was, like, he was like, Oh, okay. I'm like, okay, good. Good talk. But it was hilarious. I'd love to do. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so Amy, why, I guess the question I, I have at the end of the day, why did you go back to Dallas?
1: That is a great question. So I think what it comes down to is that, you know, I tell people all the time, I, lo- I actually loved my job at Mayo. I loved working there. I thought I was going to be there for the rest of my career. Like I planned on being there for 30 years. Um, I actually, you know, never expected or anticipated to get asked to come back to Scottish Rite. But then when that became available, what it really came down to is uh, the things that I love are, um, being clinical. So I, 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 love operating and I love um, seeing kids. I like doing research. Mayo had a great, great research kind of backbone, but you and you and all the rest of us on the phone call know that the research support at Scottish, right? Is ridiculous. Um, and it, and it was better than Mayo. And then third, I was never going to have the opportunity to train fellows like you have at Scottish, right? And I truly love, um, like training and educating and mentoring people. Like, I just love it. And so I just, that was never going to be a true reality. Like I got to train residents at Mayo and I love training the residents too. But I think we all agree that training fellows is just like this next level. You know what I mean? This is something that they're going to do for the rest of their life. And they're like super invested in it's Super special. Like, don't you feel like our fellowship year at Scottish, right? was like the greatest year of your life.
0: It's amazing. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. So then
1: for me to be able to be a part of that for other people, I just literally couldn't turn it down. Right. And so I always say I had to trade my one love for my other love. So they played my loves against me. Right. But ultimately, because I am a pediatric orthopedic surgeon and Scottish, right, it's it's kind of like a little mini Mayo Clinic for Peds Ortho. Um, I couldn't say no. Right. I just couldn't. (laughs) And I'm glad I didn't. Like, I love, I love my job. I love working at Scottish Rite. And I really love working with the fellows. Like, it's just amazing.
2: There's a lot to be said for, you know, opening up a journal and seeing your old fellows who came through and their research and what they're publishing. And every time, you know, someone is on the podium, you're like, Oh, Scottish Right fellow. Like I trained them and it's, it is, it's really amazing. I mean, we, we keep track of uh, how many of our fellows make it on the podium at POSMA. And if one of you wins, you know, the best paper award, that's a, we think that's a win for us. I mean, that, that's, you know, just as proud as if you had, you know, as if it were one of us. I mean, it's, it really is. It's, it's, it's an amazing feeling to kind of be part of that legacy and then to see ahead of you, all the people that you have trained and it's great, you know, and they, still so we'll will email me cases and text me and I've gotten some calls when people are in the operating room saying, Hey, this happened, what should I do? You know, and to, to have, you know, I think that that reach is just really special, you know?
1: Yeah, you understand, Nick, like, I've like, built relationships with the fellows that I mean, it's just amazing. And so I'm kind of like creepy. Like, if I decide you're my friend, so Nick, watch out. You fall in that category. I'll just like show up at your house one day. I'll be like, hey, the Macintoshes are here. And you'll be like, what? Yeah. I mean, remember you told me we could always visit. Yeah, you're always welcome. Yeah. And so I mean, I feel it is. It's like we're this weird, creepy family, right? And so. That is like than others, Nick. right? Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I, that was just never going to be possible for me at Mayo because they just don't have the volume there to have a fellowship, and so I really wanted that. And so it took, you know, but I had to move away from all my family. But now I have my Scottish Rite family, um, and you know, live in Texas, which is like fourteen hundred miles from where I grew up. But honestly, it's the best decision I ever made.
0: Yeah, and and you know, you mentioned the mentor side of things, and and I think that's the the opportunity there. I think the 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 faculty is so remarkable um, coming through it as a fellow uh, with regards to how they mentor you, really in every step of the way. Um, you know, whether it's the, uh, the the clinical side of things, but also practice and sort of life philosophies. It's pretty remarkable. Can you talk about? Uh, the mentorship that you got and um, how important that was for you.
1: I think that was one of the most important things for me during fellowship. And I don't know, I, you know, I won't speak for Christine, but so Mayo is super, um, Oh, what's the word? It's like, there's like the staff and there's like the trainees and the two shall never mix. You know what I mean? So it's very formal. And, uh, you know, we would have like a holiday party, but it was very formal And so for the first time in my life, when I was a fellow, I was invited to every attending's home. I met all of their wives and children um, and I felt like truly it was a family. Right. And that had never happened before in my like orthopedic career. So then when I went back to Mayo, that was one thing I was like, I'm going to take this with me. So then every at Mayo, when a resident is on your service, they're on your service for three months. So it's either great or it's horrific. But then I always made sure during that time period, I met their significant others, their children. They met my family, you know, and that was not normal at Mayo. Like that was extremely unusual. But I felt that was like a super important thing to bring back from Scottish Rite. And then. You know, as you know, like when I came back, I remember telling Charlie, you know, I'm not coming here for you to retire two seconds after I get here. Like, I want to work with you because that's amazing. And then like we were talking, me and Christine were talking about earlier, like having the opportunity to have Lori as a mentor for us is just amazing. I would say out of all, I mean, and this is crazy to say because they're all so great, but out of all the staff, she's been the most supportive of me and my like, academic career, which is crazy to say, because they've all been so supportive, but she's just insanely supportive. Plus, she's an amazing person. And she's just really fun to hang out with. And so building those types of relationships, are it's just, ins- it's just the, that's what makes Scottish Wright like, so amazing to me. So I try to be a really good mentor now, to the fellows, and I try to be a really good mentor to medical students and high school students. And that's something that has become like a little side, like passion of mine is to kind of be like that type of mentor that everyone at Scottish Right was for me to like the next generation. And I'm, I'm not great at it, but I'm working really hard at it to be as good as I can be.
0: Yeah, and Christine, I want to hear your thoughts. So uh, for for the audience, I, I never got to train under Amy, but I did get to train under Christine and Christine's <laughs> OR is uh, is about as enjoyable as you could possibly imagine. Um, there's a lot of heckling. Uh, there's a lot of guided direction, um, but it's, uh, I mean, I really enjoyed uh, taking call and, and doing cases over at Children's. And to this day, the, the entire reason I feel like I'm competent with lateral condyle fractures is because of you. But maybe, I, you know, you've had a lot of mentors in a lot of different areas over there, whether it be Mary Beth or Lori or, you know, the rest of the group. Can you talk about that? And also, I think maybe uh, I'd love to hear from both of you as to how, how specifically you look to mentor people.
2: So, number one, I'm just going to address my OR. If your OR day as a surgeon is not the best day of your week, you're in the wrong line of work. Okay. I really, that's my, that's my favorite part of the week is my OR day. And so, yeah, it's fun. And, and to have a fellow like you, Nick, who's also, you know, a a very positive person and very enthusiastic. Sometimes I would say suspiciously enthusiastic, uh, (laughs) you know, it makes it fun for me as a teacher, you know, and it makes it, 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 there's a lot of give and take. And, and so I, I think that that teaching is just, you know, can be just such a joy, you know, um, you know, I don't want to say when you have the right fellow, but you know, I mean, it's, it's, it is, it can be very joyful. To me, the OR is kind of like my happy place at work. It's definitely not meetings. It's unfortunately, I mean, clinic, it, it all depends on what kind of people come into clinic. But my day in the operating room is the best part of my week. So as far as mentors I think it's really hard to say I don't think that I go out and try and say here ask me to be your mentor it's kind of like that you know I, I remember I can't remember where I heard it from but it's like that book that children's book you know are you my mother are you my mentor are you my mentor <laughs> are you my mentor and I think that that kind of you know comes organically out of out of just that relationship and teaching and, and I don't you know I've been assigned mentees and I've been assigned some g- really great mentees who have also made me better um, you know, but sometimes those people that you're assigned, perhaps it, it doesn't click quite as organically as it would if you had just kind of, you know, found each other either at a meeting or through, you know, uh, mutual friends or that you train them and then that kind of clicks. Um, so, um, you know, it, it's hard for me to, to I don't really actively seek out people to mentor you know, Amy uh, organized the Perry initiative uh, for us. And, you know, obviously that's not happening this year, but certainly, you know, we say, Hey, here's our information. You can email us if you need. And I've had med students reach out to me. Uh, I've met them for coffee, given them advice. I've uh, had some of them uh, do research projects with me that have, you know, gotten them on the podium and knock on wood so far, all of them have gotten into orthopedic residency. Um, you know, and as far as my personal mentors, you know, it's, it, you know, when I was a, a resident at LA County you see, we had no uh, women attending at all. There were lots of women in the program, but no women attending. But I think, you know, you know I've mentioned it before watching, you know, uh, you know, Tolo, Skag, Kay just have such a joy of being at work and, and loving what they do. And, you know, having, you know, great families that they also that time that they spend is precious. They weren't you know wanting to operate routinely till midnight like some of our spine surgeons were they actually want to go home and they want to have dinner with their kids and and you know that really had a a, had an effect on me I looked at them and I was like well I want to you know be like those guys and then you know on a more I guess fellowship level you know I can't you know understate the effect that Lori has had with pushing me forward to take more of a um more roles, more volunteerism, more leadership, uh, where I think that until she started kind of pushing me in those directions, I really was like, eh, I'm just happy to be here. staff orthopedists, going to do my little niche job and that's all I'm going to do. And so I think that she has really influenced me only for the positive to, you know, contribute to Postman and other various societies uh, in a, more of a leadership role and and volunteering my time. You know, uh, Mary Beth, of course, is is another one. She's the one I asked her, you know, how do you do it all? She said, it's not me. It was our nanny. And, uh, you know, that's the <laughs> same thing for us. I it, said, how did you raise three girls? And Bob was like president of the academy. And you're the first woman president of the ASSH. And you guys are internationally, you know, known for what you do. And how did your girls, how did you, do it? she's like the nanny. And, and so we do the Mary Beth um, uh, program. We have our nanny. And I love that she, I come home and she's, you know, empty the dishwasher and the coffee maker doesn't sell grounds and it. it's clean and it's put in the coffee machine and it's ready for the next day. Um, you know, and then Pete Carter is another one as well. And I, I tell you, even after Pete retired, um, I one time I texted him, I said, you know, I just did a one stage tenograph and it went terrible. Um, this kid's not really really doing well. I just don't think that, you know, what are you know, I just don't think that, you know, I I what are your tips? And he's like, what are you doing Sunday? I'm coming over at two o'clock with beers. And he literally showed up at my door with with beer and a PowerPoint that he had made and to to with pictures, because he's a big picture taker. I mean, and that, that's kind of the above and beyond that but that's who you know, I think that we should strive to be as as a mentor and as a teachers is someone like that who's willing to, to give of their time so generously when they're retired and swing by to teach me and to be a better surgeon at two o'clock on a Sunday
1: yeah Nick yeah I tried hard also to like if I have a patient who says maybe I want to be you I've worked hard for them to be able to shadow me one day in the OR and like one day in clinic so they get to kind of see both sides because I think everybody thinks the OR is just so glamorous right But then glamorous. Yeah. But you have to see the the clinic side. And then I I like Christine said, I think the Perry initiative's been great um, for us. So it's encouraging women and minorities to consider orthopedics as a career. And where we work on uh, juniors in high school and the medical students, the first and second year medical students, just to say, like, hey, you can do this. Just think about it as an opportunity. But for me, it's been amazing. Like I've had a couple of um, undergraduates who are now in medical school that I've mentored and now they're thinking about orthopedic surgery as a career. And I have a patient who now is also in medical school. And so I think the key is if they even remotely say, hey, maybe I'd wanna be you. I don't think you know unless you just come and experience it. So some kids come and they hang out with me in the OR for one day and for clinic, and they say, "There's no way I want to be
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> pass out in the OR." Yeah, they're
1: like, "Yeah, they're like, no." And that's a really important thing too to realize early that this is not for you, because I think we all learn that in medical school. You either like love the OR and time like disappears and it's like the most amazing thing, or you really don't like it. And I think learning that early is important. And then I tell them, well, you don't have to be me. And then there's other opportunities. And so then just giving people that opportunity, I think, is important. And then on the research side, I've been working with, Christine and I both have been working with medical students a lot lately. And I just find it so enjoyable. Like sometimes we're their mentor on their very first, you remember, do you remember yours? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like your very first abstract your very first podium um, acceptance, your first manuscript acceptance, like that's such an exciting thing for them. And I weirdly like love being involved in that. And so I, I think it's just important to have, and then I kind of remember what it was like to be in their shoes. And I think if you, you know, don't forget what it, what that feels like for them. I think that just continues to kind of like drive your passion to, to want to be a mentor. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I think that, you know, kudos to to both of you for working with medical students. You know, it's an, it's an interesting thing that I didn't appreciate until a little bit later on in my career that there's a, there's a big difference. I mean, you can give a fellow, especially a a motivated fellow a project and you don't have to show up you know, they, it just happens. And all of a sudden you have, you've got a project and it's completed, but there's a lot of nurturing that happens on the medical school side because they haven't done any of that. And to get us a student to really put together a thoughtful project and, and, you know, make it worthwhile for them and for you, I think takes a lot of effort. So I think that's great.
1: I remember being like, you don't want that to be your background color for PowerPoint. (laughs)
0: Right, right, right. Black and gray.
2: Yeah, that's bad. Uh,
1: But from a
2: selfish point of view, those med students, they are closers. They are closers oh, yeah. because they know they need to. I mean, they are, i don't, you know, they are
0: better well, they closers are than not. some of our
2: more advanced. <laughs> I have found in my experience that they have been better closers as far as getting the papers to a publication state than some of their more advanced counterparts.
0: <laughs> but, but we but, don't have but to name I any also names the like, public uh, podcast. <laughs> but some of them, so, but sometimes you get a manuscript that you're like, oh, wow. yeah okay Right. we're gonna redline that entire thing we're gonna start over and let's meet and talk about it.
1: right okay we're gonna work on this but (laughs) I I mean but I just find that whole process I think it's just exciting because oh it's super fun yeah because you know what they're feeling you know and and then when they get into medical school it's just when you're working with these undergrads it's like I just remember what it was like when I got in and so it just it just makes me happy to help kind of the next generation coming up, you know, and so I love mentoring. And that's, I think one of the other greatest things about academics, right? We do have a much greater opportunity to mentor than if you're in like pure private practice or what I call like private demics, where it's sort of, you know, academic private practice. And that's one of the other things that I love about our, our ability at Scottish Right is, is the ability to mentor.
0: And I think also at POSNA. I mean both of you have been pretty involved there but the you know the there's obviously a, a formal mentorship program but as as members of IPOS you've both been mentors there.
1: Yes. And then then to see your mentees, you know, go do a fellowship and then you know go out into their practice, it's exactly the same feelings I have like when the fellows that I train come out. And I think that's why like you were asking like why do you think women gravitate towards peds in hand? Maybe it's because we're far superiorly advanced in regards to mentorship and, you know, bringing along the, the sort of the next generation compared to the other subspecialties. I don't know what you think about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, compared to the knuckle dragging arthroplasty surgeons, I think there's you're probably <laughs> on to something there. Um,
2: I have friends who are arthroplasty surgeons. Not all oh, of I've got, knuckles. I mean, yeah, it's so funny. But it is. For, I mean, there's. I think that, you know, there's. It, there are definitely societies that have been, I think, less open to accepting that younger generation. I mean, I just remember being a, a, a fellow at Posna, the first Posna I'd ever gone to, and meeting people at our Scottish Rite, like, you know, happy hour thing, who I knew by reputation because their names were all over like 200 papers. And they welcomed me and they were like, oh my gosh, you're a Scottish Right fellow, you know, I'm so-and-so and I'm like, oh, I know who you are. <laughs> you know, but I think that just that those connections, people were so open, not just ex-Scottish Right fellows, but it'd in the wide. People were just, are just really open to meeting you and, and getting to know you and helping you in your career. Um, you know, I, it's a very welcoming society.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think, that, I mean, IPOS is, for anybody listening who hasn't gone, try to find the time because the interactions are are truly lifelong um, in terms of their their impact, at least on me.
1: Yeah,
0: for sure. You know, I, I remember my first two or three IPOS for sure. So
1: yeah, I honestly,
0: um, IPOS well, is the yeah.
1: best educational um, meeting that like. In orthopedics, honestly.
0: In medicine. Yeah. There there can't be anything better than that.
1: It's so good. I
2: feel like that meeting, that meeting triggers more imposter syndrome in me than any other meeting that I go to. It is, I mean, you, the quality that is expected from the educators and the faculty is so high and you have to bring your A game. I spend more time on those talks. I spend more time trying to make sure the delivery is right. That the cases I've got are good. That the discussion is pointed. I mean, it is very triggering as far as impo- I mean. Sometimes I look around on this panel and I'm like, wow, like one of these things is not like the other. And that would be me because is like Cozen, <laughs> and this is Peter Waters, and, you know, and and so you know, it really I think is as faculty, it, it elevates our game as well you know, that being on, uh, on faculty at iPods. And I mean, I can't tell you the number of connections I've made, not just with other faculty members, but just, you know, all of the attendees from not just, you know, America, but, you know, across the pond, you know, and in, in Great Britain. And so it really is, I think the premier educational interactive, taking it to the next level experience. And, and I love every year, they try to do something a little different. Like last year, they did this flipped classroom for some of the upper extremity sessions I thought were just like, you know, Lind- Lindley Wall is the one who um, ran it. It was kind of, I think, da- Dawn's idea. And, and that was just, I think, just hugely successful. It just led to such great discussions with so many teaching points that were more interactive than in a traditional format. And then this year, you know, I know that there had been plans. I think you and I might have been kind yeah. of pulled into this, this Jonathan Scheneker. Uh, sort of, um, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, it wouldn't have, you know, it would not have translated well to virtual. So I think that they'll constantly try to push those educational envelopes and, and make us be better teachers.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, the your comment about imposter syndrome is, is spot <laughs> on because when I was, the first time I was invited, I thought, oh my God, they made a huge mistake on this right. one. And I had no idea. I think Ben Shore told me, that he had spent like 300 hours doing a um, video for his master's technique talk on PDRO. And I think that just speaks to how important this is for all of the, all the teachers. Um, And obviously that translates to the learners uh, in, in just a tremendous amount of, of knowledge. And I mean, I'm sure we all remember the first time we went, I mean, I went in, as a resident. And then again, as a fellow, and it was just mind blowing, absolutely mind blowing. I mean, I love the annual meeting and it's great, but it's, it's just, they're, they're different. And, and as a young learner, IPOS offers something that nothing else in at least orthopedics uh, has.
2: You know, I went the first year that they moved it back permanently to to the U S and that was 2005. And it was Lori who said, Hey, this is IPOS. I'm like, I don't know what that is. And she said, You should apply for these scholarships and you really need to go. And I said, Okay. And so this was, I mean, it was so new. I think I was the only fellow in my class to go to ICO. And it was a really small meeting. It was at the Crown Plaza across from downtown Disney. They now call it Disney Springs. Um, and it was, I mean, and it was, it was, it was, I think, like you know, a fraction of the size that it is now. And you really got to be one on one with. The faculty with meeting the other fellows. I mean, I made friends at that meeting who I still am friends with to this day, who have crossed my lives, my life in so many times during my pediatric orthopedic career. You know, all based from us meeting at IPOS and going out to dinner and dancing at Downtown Disney. And you know, it's uh, you know, it's, it really is. I think the best experience both as a trainee and now to come back and have my imposter you know, syndrome triggered as faculty.
0: <laughs> well, listen, uh, ladies, we are up against almost two hours, which uh, has been, has, uh, it's like an operating room. I feel like it's uh, blown by. Um, I had my adult cocktail. I uh, have enjoyed this tremendously. Um, anything you guys want to talk about before we're done? Um, uh, I'm, we're, I'm happy to, you know, keep going. But uh, but this has been amazing.
1: I think we're good. I was going to say I my uh, playlist in the OR was a hip hop barbecue on Thursday.
0: Oh, hip-hop barbecue amazing. is amazing. Hip-hop <laughs> barbecue is not for people who uh, are scared of swear words. And a- I have one circulating nurse who will not let me do a hip-hop barbecue. But if you're a child of the 90s, my God, it is like and heaven.
1: That, the circulating nurse at Scottish Rite who was against the swears, she retired. So it's like hip-hop barbecue is back on the <laughs> menu. My current fellows like, yeah, don't test it with your kids. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but it is amazing for anyone listening out there in the audience. It's a great day in the OR with hip hop barbecue.
0: <laughs> oh God. That's a great way to end this. Uh, well, both of you, this has been exactly what I wanted other than the fact that it wasn't in person, but, uh, this was I know. so I'm much unit. fun and thank you. Yeah, this is, uh, was great. Um, so uh, thank you both. And uh, I look forward to many, many more times together. Uh, we'll try to do it without Amy losing quite as much money as the last time I saw her when we were <laughs> I gambling in the lobby at IPOS. Did
1: you see I made the uh, donation? I made the donation.
0: Yes, I did see that. that yep. yeah. so, <laughs> um, but, th- but thank you both.
1: Yes, I can't wait to see you in person. Awesome.
0: Thanks for asking.